This is the BBC. For details of our complete range of programmes, go to bbcworldservice.com forward slash podcasts. Welcome to the latest global news recorded at 14 hours GMT on Friday the 8th of December. I'm Jackie Leonard with a selection of highlights from across BBC World Service News today. Coming up, Brexit negotiations are set to move to a new phase after a breakthrough on what have become known as the divorce issues. I believe we have now made the work full. We need it. Getting to this point has required give and take on both sides. Let us remember that the most difficult challenge is still ahead. Also in the podcast, protests are taking place for a second day in the Gaza Strip and West Bank against President Trump's decision to recognise Jerusalem as the Israeli capital. Three people have been killed and another injured at a well-known Shinto shrine in Tokyo in what appears to be a family feud. And later, how Cape Town is coping with a major drought. We are now looking at augmenting our water supply by bringing on additional water because we can no longer rely just on rainwater to fill up our dams. But first, there's been a breakthrough in Brexit talks after months of often difficult negotiations. The European Commission has agreed that sufficient progress has been made on what have become known as the divorce issues, including the status of the Irish border, Britain's financial obligations and EU citizens' rights. In the true fashion of previous EU deals, this was also struck in the early hours of the morning, is the British Prime Minister, Theresa May. Getting to this point has required give and take on both sides. And I believe that the joint report uh, being published is in the best interests of the whole of the UK. I very much welcome the prospect of moving ahead to the next phase, to talk about trade and security and to discuss the positive and ambitious future relationship that is in all of our interests. I've consistently said that we want to build a deep and special partnership with the EU as we implement the decision of the British people to leave at the end of March 2019. The President of the European Council, Donald Tusk, credited Mrs May with reaching the deal. This morning I received the confirmation from our negotiators that sufficient progress has been made. This allows me to present the draft guidelines for the December European Council, which I have just sent to the leaders. While being satisfied with today's agreement, which is obviously the personal success of Prime Minister Theresa May, let us remember that the most difficult challenge is still ahead. So what exactly was achieved? A question for our Brussels correspondent, Kevin Connolly. This is the moment the British government has been waiting for for months, the moment when the European Union sat down and reviewed the Brexit negotiations so far and decided that the UK had made enough progress on the three first phase issues, that is the rights of EU citizens in the UK, the size of the UK's financial settlement, the bill it has to pay to leave the European Union, and the future of the Irish border had done enough on those three issues together to allow the process to move on to trade talks. And what does that progress look like on the Northern Ireland border, on the rights of EU citizens and on the financial settlement? What will it mean? Well, on the rights of the EU citizens in the UK, for example, and also, of course, British citizens, 
living in the European Union member states. It means a degree of certainty about the right to remain. It means a degree of certainty about legal rights, what courts they would use if they found themselves in a dispute with the authorities over their status, over their rights of family unification. So that is a, a solid deal which is meant to reassure ordinary people effectively caught up in the Brexit process. On the financial settlement, we don't know, nobody knows, what the bill will ultimately be. But the two sides have agreed a way in which the bill will be paid. Not an enormous cheque from the UK government next year, but uh, a process of meeting liabilities as they arise, including things like pension payments, stretching into the future. On the Irish border, a little bit less clarity, but forms of words which keep unionists in Northern Ireland happy, that's those Northern Irish citizens who want to remain part of the UK, but also a form of words which the Dublin government can live with. So all of those circles have been squared... All of those deals have been done and the Brexit process remains on track and moving forward after a difficult period. As you say, this has all been going on for months. Donald Tusk says that the hard part happens now. So so what are the main topics for the future negotiations? This is very much just the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end. And Donald Tusk didn't exactly throw a bucket of cold water on the process uh, today, but he did throw a sort of cup of cold water on it because... He says, right, the test of sufficient progress has been passed, and that's a great achievement for Theresa May, the British Prime Minister. But the difficult bit is still to come, because what you have to do next in this process is agree the rules of a transition period for the UK, what happens when it ceases to be a member, but before a future trade deal has been finalised and nailed down, and then what will be the terms of that trade deal? Will there be tariffs, for example, Will British banks still be able to operate freely across the European Union? Will German car makers be able to sell into the UK market without extra taxes and charges? So a huge number of questions now have to be resolved. You know, free trade agreements can take many, many years to negotiate. We're at a pretty early stage of the Brexit process and we will still be talking about it, of course, for years to come. Yes, we will. That was Kevin Connolly. Well, earlier in the week, Mrs May's first attempt at reaching a deal with the EU faltered after objections from Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party, whose votes are propping up Mrs May's government. Today, the DUP leader Arlene Foster said she was pleased with the outcome. We believe that there have been six substantive changes um, and we're pleased to see those changes because uh, for me it means that there is no red line down the Irish Sea and we have uh, the very clear confirmation that the entirety of the United Kingdom is leaving the European Union, leaving the single market, leaving the customs union. The Irish Prime Minister Leo Varadkar welcomed the agreement but said the Irish issue would remain an important part of the second phase of negotiations. This is not the end, but it is the end of the beginning. And we will remain fully engaged and vigilant throughout phase two, the drafting and ratification of the new treaties that will be required between the EU and the UK and their implementation. So are the politicians celebrating? A question for our London correspondent, Rob Watson. I definitely think it's the word relief, big moment, more than the time for popping the champagne corks. And that is simply this, that there is no doubt that the European Union feared that had there not been an agreement to move on to that next phase, that perhaps Theresa May's government would have collapsed and that they would end up with something worse and that Britain would leave without a deal, which while certain Brexiteers don't mind that, most people think that that would be fairly disastrous. So massive amounts of relief all round. 
but I think not for the champagne because that difficult bit is this future relationship between Britain and the European Union. And despite everything we've been hearing from Britain <laughs> in the last few hours, that is very much still up for grabs because one has to remember not only is the government divided on what Britain's future relationship with the European Union should be, Parliament is, and indeed, so are we, the British people. Now, we heard Arlene Foster there sounding cautiously optimistic, I would say. What has changed to bring her and her DUP round, and, and, and will it be enough? I think it was a combination of time. I mean, I think the, uh, I think the Prime Minister had the, the gun of the <laughs> barrel of time pointed at the DUP's head. Look, we need to get this sorted out. We can't have you holding this up. And, of course, I suppose spelling it out in absolutely black and white that there will be no divergence between the arrangements for, for Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, which for, these, uh, for the DUP is an absolute bedrock issue. That was Rob Watson. Protests have broken out in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip against President Trump's decision to recognise Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Israel has deployed hundreds of extra police in the city following a call by Palestinian groups for a day of rage. Israeli forces in Jerusalem have broken up a sit-in by Palestinian demonstrators at Damascus Gate, one of the entrances to the city. Mickey Rosenfeld is a police spokesman. Extra units, border police, special patrol units and undercover units will respond on the outskirts of the old city to any major incidents or illegal protests. For more details on the protests, here's our correspondent in Jerusalem, Tom Bateman. Well, so far there have been clashes uh, largely in the occupied West Bank, in the cities of Bethlehem, Hebron uh, and Ramallah. Uh, here in the old city of Jerusalem itself, behind me, we watched uh, as people left noon prayers. They came from the Al-Aqsa Mosque and left Lionsgate, which is just behind me uh, here. Now, that's uh, at times a flashpoint when there are protests uh, expected and people simply uh, walked away at another of the gates to the old city. Uh, there were hundreds of people there. There were some minor confrontations with police. Some of that continued within the old city itself. But as far as Jerusalem is concerned, it's been really relatively calm, at least so far this afternoon. Police have been braced for a day of rage that was proclaimed by uh, Palestinians. They bolstered numbers of police and border police by hundreds in Jerusalem itself, and there were extra military units in the West Bank uh, as well. But so far... Uh, and I stress so far, we haven't seen things reach the level they did, for example, in the summer when there was a crisis over access to one of the holy sites here uh, and protests continued then over a couple of weeks. As far as the Israeli response, well, you know, I mean, I was talking to ordinary Israelis in Jerusalem yesterday about all this. I mean, many people feel a great sense of pride about what Donald Trump did in declaring Jerusalem the capital of Israel. There are those others, more liberal, those on the left of Israeli politics, that are concerned about what may happen next in security. That was Tom Bateman in Jerusalem. You're listening to Global News, the most important stories and the best interviews and on-the-spot reporting from the BBC World Service. And a reminder that every weekend you can hear a review of the week's main news stories and why they matter. That's in the world this week. So what's in it this weekend? Here's Johnny. 
So much good stuff, so little time. When it comes to the Middle East, few hold a candle to our senior international correspondent, Lise Doucette, and she'll be here to tell us about the impact of Donald Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital and the impressive amount of hostile comment it generated. Britain's done a deal on Brexit, the first of many it needs to make. I'll be digging around the weeds to see how Britain versus the rest of Europe is going. And I'm chatting to Steve Rosenberg in Moscow about the rude awakening Russia have had over how the rest of the world views state-sponsored doping. He's been out on the ski slopes talking to Russians about their country's ban from the Winter Olympics. And why do we think things are worse than they are? Cheer up, everyone. There's a cracking programme ahead. The inimitable Johnny Diamond. That's all in the world this week, broadcast on Saturdays and Sundays and also available to download from our website. The South African High Court has ruled that President Jacob Zuma's appointment of the National Director of Public Prosecutions wasn't valid. It's ordered Sean Abrahams to vacate the post. More from Andrew Harding in Johannesburg. This is a huge blow for President Jacob Zuma. Sean Abrahams had been accused of protecting Mr Zuma and his allies from prosecution in relation to a series of corruption investigations. Now South Africa's High Court has ruled that Mr Abrahams must step down and it gets worse for President Zuma. The court said a new prosecutor should be chosen by his deputy, Cyril Ramaphosa. Mr Ramaphosa has been strongly critical of high-level corruption and has emerged as a fierce rival to Mr Zuma and his possible successor. That was Andrew Harding. And staying in South Africa, as a tourist destination, Cape Town seems to have it all. Spectacular scenery, beautiful beaches, expansive wine country and a glitzy nightlife. But there's one thing currently in short supply. Water. A major drought has meant that those who live in Cape Town are subject to severe restrictions, Kumzifalani reports. Three years ago, Diervatroskloof Dam was 68% full, but its capacity now sits at only 23%. Experts warn that if nothing changes, the city of Cape Town will be out of municipal water by May next year. For officials here, the search is on for an alternative supply of this precious resource. The drought right now is the worst in 100 years because of climate change. And no generation had to go through this before. Executive Mayor Patricia DeLille. We are now looking at augmenting our water supply by bringing on additional water because we can no longer rely just on rainwater to fill up our dams. The drought has led the popular tourist city to impose strict water restrictions on residents to keep the taps from drying out. But some have struck gold in this hour of need. Trevor Hennings owns a local borehole drilling business. It's an old business, but it's been successful in recent months. So the the drought has caused my business to absolutely balloon. There's absolute panic amongst the people in Cape Town about trying to get onto the waiting list to drill boreholes. We're sitting with a three-year waiting list, which is completely unmanageable at at the moment. A, A year ago, I was drilling with one drill rig. Now I've got six in the field. And even that, uh, we, we can't manage with the amount of people who, who want boreholes. So what do residents have to do to stay within the new bylaws? Households are to use no more than 87 litres per person, and businesses and commercial properties are also being closely monitored for excessive use. Abusers could be fined or have their water turned off. We visit an apartment building in Newlands. The residents here are doing little things every day to keep their water usage low. Steve de Villiers says making the adjustment was challenging at first, but has now become second nature. 
the, the basic is you've got to keep consumption to less than 87 liters per person per day, which equates to about two liters of drinking water, flushing the toilet once or twice, keeping your shower to less than two minutes per day, and just using water more frugally in general. Some know they are breaking the rules, but for some of the city's poorer residents, water is a lifeline. I'm at a car wash on the side of a busy street in Kaelicha, a township outside of Cape Town. There are two large cars in front of me, each getting a good splash of water from a green hose pipe. Now, driving through this township, I counted about five car washers in less than a kilometre, so it's a popular business. The water here is free to the residents, but businesses like this one are meant to use one bucket per car, but that doesn't seem to be happening. The man you're about to hear didn't want to be identified, worried his business might be targeted by authorities. We're trying by all means to save water, but we are not willing to close this business because we, we work here to support our families and to support ourselves. Everyday life has changed for many here. The routine now includes queuing for water at one of the 200 springs dotted across the city. Residents use this water to boost their daily supply. Mayor Delil believes they've done enough to prevent the worst-case scenario. Day zero is when our dams reach 13.5%. That's when we will turn off the taps, where people will then have to go and collect water and queue for water at about 200 collection points around the city. Each one will be then entitled to receive 25 litres per person per day. But at the rate that we are saving now, and with the augmented water that we're bringing on stream now, I'm very confident that together, all Capetonians, we can avoid day zero. But still, the threat of the taps running dry persists. And so, in these uncertain times, every drop counts. That report was by Pumza Falani in South Africa. Several new wildfires have started in Southern California, stretching firefighters to the limit. Coastal communities on the Pacific Ocean, including the city of Santa Barbara, are preparing for evacuations. Three firefighters have been injured by the blazes, which have already forced some 200,000 residents to flee their homes. Nearly 440 buildings have been destroyed by a huge fire immediately to the north of Los Angeles. Gina Ferrazzi is a staff photographer for the LA Times. She told Dan Damon about some of the scenes she witnessed while covering the lilac fire in North San Diego County. As I approached it from the freeway, I saw the huge black plume and I knew I had to work my way down into where the flames were. I ended up finding what turned out to be a sort of an upscale mobile home park, which is actually on a country club, a golf course. And I parked my car in the median, and I, I have my fire gear on, and I started walking into the complex, and I saw complete devastation. Flames had engulfed so many of the mobile homes. As I kept walking, I saw that the flames were, the wind was, was flaring up so bad that it had engulfed like four of them at once. So I was with the firefighters as they were trying to save the homes across the street. And the wind kicked up, and all of a sudden, the flames went through one of the mobile homes, and the windows burst, and the flames just leaped up like a mushroom cloud of fire. And I felt the heat on my face, and I had to back up slightly. So that 
I think today that was one of my most dramatic photographs. Really sad to see around the holidays these people losing their homes, and there's there's nothing left. It was total devastation. Today, I was in an area that started small, and the winds kicked up. It went from 100 acres to now it's over 4,000 acres in a matter of hours. So that's the problem when we have these Santa Ana winds here. And it's not just the homes, is it? It seems that vehicles, motor vehicles, you just need the wind and the sparks going in so fast that cars, they just catch fire. And what happens is people have limited amount of time to evacuate. So they may just all go in one car and forget that, oh, no, I should have taken the other car that's in my driveway because that's going to burn. I see that happen all the time. What was really sad today, and I didn't get to this section, a lot of racehorses died today. Parts of San Diego are home to many uh, racehorses. You know, you've got the Del Mar track and Los Alamitos. A lot of racehorses died in the fire today, and that's an unusual thing, and it's, it's very sad. So that's going to be an ongoing story that I think we'll follow up with tomorrow. Gina Ferrazzi, a staff photographer for the LA Times. Reports from Japan say the head priestess of a Shinto shrine has been killed by her brother with a samurai sword following a long-standing family feud. The incident took place at Tomioka Hachimangu, which dates back 400 years. More from our Asia-Pacific editor, Michael Bristow. The siblings have been arguing for more than a decade about which one of them would take control of the Tokyo shrine from their father. The sister eventually won, becoming chief priestess in 2010. But the brother was unhappy. He once sent his sister a note warning that he would send her to hell. Media reports say the priestess has now been ambushed and killed by her brother and his wife. The brother is then thought to have killed his wife before taking his own life. A bloodied samurai sword was found at the scene. That was Michael Bristow. Scientists say a 530-million-year-old fossil contains what could be the oldest eye ever found. The remains of the extinct sea creature include an early form of the eye seen in many of today's animals, including crabs, bees and dragonflies. Experts believe that the development of eyes and sight caused an evolutionary explosion of complex life forms, as Professor Andrew Parker has been telling Sarah Smith. It totally changed things. Before we had eyes, animals could only detect what was around them based on chemical changes or pressure waves in the water. And then all of a sudden, the very first eye evolved, and this just opened up uh, totally new possibilities. Suddenly, animals could pinpoint everything that was around them within a split second. So it changed things. They became predators, and they attacked all the other animals around them, which in turn evolved defences, and it caused life to change, and change forever. We have the event called the Cambrian Explosion, or the Big Bang of Evolution. So it was actually the evolution of eyes, and now we know this was just before that uh, explosive event that actually triggered the event itself. And of course, when Darwin first came up with the theory of evolution, creationists used the complexity of the eye as an argument against his theory, didn't they? They did. We now know that the the eye can evolve very gradually, going through a series of steps where each step provides an advantage over its, its predecessor. But it's also this introduction of vision. This is the first time colour exists on Earth. So colour is something that doesn't really exist without eyes. Colour is only in the mind. There's no colour around us anywhere. That was Professor Andrew Parker. 
Now, Google's artificial intelligence program seems to have achieved something really quite impressive. It taught itself to play chess from scratch in just four hours and then went on to beat the world's computer chess champion. Alice Porter explains. AlphaZero is an artificial intelligence or AI program which was developed by the Google-owned company DeepMind. After learning chess from scratch in just a few hours, it beat the world's best chess computer program, Stockfish 8, winning or drawing all of the 100 games it played. Computer programs have been able to beat the best human chess players since IBM's Deep Blue supercomputer defeated Garry Kasparov in 1997. But DeepMind said the difference between AlphaZero and its competitors is that it's given no human input apart from the basic rules of chess. The rest, AlphaZero works out by playing itself over and over with self-reinforced knowledge, so it becomes more human-like when playing chess. Chess grandmasters have hailed AlphaZero, but the repercussions could go well beyond the sport. Joanna Bryson is an expert on artificial intelligence and associate professor at the University of Bath in the UK. She explains how AlphaZero could go on to help the medical profession. I would imagine they're probably thinking of doing drug discovery because chemistry is a little bit like that. You know, in general, artificial intelligence, it's an extension of our own intelligence and it just means that we're going to get clever and cleverer. So we already are solving a lot of cancers and things like that and being able to use these kinds of tools to search for better solutions even faster. It's only going to help us all. That was Joanna Bryson ending that report by Alice Porter. And that's it from us for now. But there'll be an updated version of the Global News podcast for you later if you would like to comment on this podcast or on the topics covered in it or indeed whether you think chess really is a sport. You just send us an email. The address is globalpodcast at bbc.co.uk or you can tweet us using the hashtag globalnewspod. I'm Jackie Leonard. Until next time. Goodbye. Hey, David, it's Patrick. And uh, maybe this time if I win, maybe I will take you up on this one more dollar. It's uh, Back to the Future. I think it was a little pitchy, but still, well done.